Let's bow together in prayer. Would you join me? Lord, today we do proclaim the grace and glory that belongs alone to you. Father, your almighty Son, we adore and worship. And we quiet ourselves before you, desiring with all of our hearts that in this time we might hear from you. We have come not only to sing and to speak to you, but to be quiet and to listen. And so open our minds, prepare our hearts, and do that work by the Spirit which you alone can do within each one of us. For, Lord, we are a needy people. We need cleansing from our sins. We need grace for our struggles and temptations. We need encouragement along this pilgrim pathway. And so we present ourselves to you, acknowledging our needs and trusting you to provide for them by your grace and glory. Sing with me the chorus that I think most of us know. Father, we love you, we worship and adore you. Father, we love you, we worship and adore you. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. We worship and adore you. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name. And Spirit, we love you. Spirit, we love you. We worship and adore you. Glorify thy name in all the Glorify thy name, glorify thy name, glorify thy name in all the earth. 
Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. There are some things that you try to wipe out of your memory. But in the back of my mind, I recall an occasion when I was late for an appointment and drove perhaps a little bit too fast to get there, but nonetheless arrived safely and pulled into the parking lot, jumped out of my car, locked the door, and went into the building, only to realize that I had left the car running with the keys inside of the locked car, and there I was late for an appointment in a real mess. If you've ever lost your keys or been locked out of a place you wanted to be, you know the importance of a key. It's valuable. A key brings to us entrance and comfort. Daniel was urgently asking God in Daniel chapter 9 for the restoration of the Jewish nation. We examined that prayer of his last week. You will recall that for nearly 70 years they had been exiled from their land. They had been locked out by God because of their disobedience and sin. Daniel knew that the exile was to be 70 years in length and that God had then promised his people restoration. And so he prayed. In answer to Daniel's petition... God gave Daniel more than an open door for the restoration of the Jews in that generation. In answer to his prayer, God gave to Daniel a key. A key that prophetically unlocked the future of the Jewish nation for Daniel's understanding. I believe that if a student of the Bible can comprehend the timeline that God revealed in this key passage that we look at this morning. He will be comforted because he will possess three assurances. He will be assured that God is sovereign. He will be assured that God is faithful. And he will be assured that God is loving. Because we all face temptation, and because we all struggle with doubt and uncertainties, We need our hearts to be reassured that God is and that God reigns. We turn today to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, and we talk about God's key to Israel's future. The key to Israel's future involves several important features, as we shall see. In verses 20 through 23, Daniel explains to us how God answered his prayer. It was while he was still praying, actually, that the man Gabriel was sent to him. By man, he does not mean a human being like you and me, but nonetheless a person, an angel, actually, who had come to him before in a vision. And he explains to Daniel that God had heard his prayer. And that from the very first of his pleading with God, he had been sent from the throne of God to give Daniel understanding. 
And in verse 24, this is that understanding, this is the key that God gave to Daniel and to all of us regarding the future of Israel. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. <clears throat> this is perhaps one of the most complex prophetic passages in the entire Old Testament. This morning we want to look at it so that we can all gain at least a preliminary understanding of this key to Israel's future. Notice that in this key there are three features that stand out immediately. They are the 70 weeks, the six accomplishments, and the three divisions. Those are the three features we want to examine this morning. First of all, the 70 weeks. Gabriel said to Daniel, 70 weeks are decreed. Literally, Gabriel said, 70 units of seven, or 70 sevens, are decreed for your people. What did he mean by that? In our culture today, because of our heritage, we think in terms of tens as mathematical units. And so we talk about decimals, and we talk about decades. We think in terms of tens. But in the culture in that day, people did not think that way. They thought in terms of sevens, or heptads. Units of seven were very common to them. And so Gabriel simply explains to Daniel something that he would more easily have understood than we might. Daniel, for your people there are seventy sevens that are decreed. Now the question is, what unit of time is Gabriel referring to? Is he talking about 70 periods of seven days? <clears throat> 70 periods of seven weeks? 70 periods of seven years? Well, as we examine biblical history following this prophecy and what took place, it is very clear that Gabriel had in mind 70 units of seven years. In other words, if you multiply that out, Gabriel is saying, Daniel, I want to tell you about a period of 490 years that are relevant to your people. 
Notice that he says, to your people, not to the church of Jesus Christ in this age, not particularly to the Gentile nations, though Daniel has dealt broadly with Gentile empires that would arise in history after his day. But he is talking about a period of 70 times 7 years, 490 years, that deal with the Jewish people. That brings us to the six accomplishments, the second feature of the key, for he says that in this period of time there would be six objectives that would be fully realized by the end of the 490 years. Three of these objectives deal with the removal of sin. Three of these objectives deal with the restoration of righteousness. Remember now, Daniel's people, the Jews, had disobeyed God, and for that disobedience they were now in exile. Daniel is saying, God, restore your people. And Gabriel brings the message from God, we must first of all deal with sin and then restore righteousness. Notice how he puts it in verse 24. These weeks of years are determined to finish the transgression. That is to get a firm grip on or a firm restraint on transgression. In other words, Gabriel says something has to be done, Daniel, to deal with sin. That is the real problem. Whether you're dealing with just the Jewish people or all the peoples of the world, the Gentiles. Sin is the real problem. It's the root problem between man and God. So that has to be dealt with. He talks about making an end of sin. And so he deals with the extent with which God will deal with it, make an end of it. And he says, furthermore, to make an atonement for iniquity. So he explains how God is going to deal with sin. It is through an atonement, through the shedding of blood, although we have not many details given to us here. Nonetheless, we are told that is the method by which God will put an end to sin and will put a firm restraint on it. Now we know, because Bible prophecy has been fulfilled since that day, that these first three objectives were principally and foundationally dealt with in Christ's first coming. This week we are remembering the cross of our Lord on Good Friday. We remember his sacrifice there where he made the final payment and atonement for sin. Now there is another sense in which the foundation only has been laid because there is still sin in the world. And Daniel's people are still in rebellion and unbelief against the Lord. And so the actual removal of sin, its final, finally being dealt with, is still in the future. But the foundation was laid in the first coming of the Savior. But he goes on to talk about a fourth objective, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And so not only would man's sin be dealt with, but God needed to do something to provide for man what he could not provide for himself, and that is righteousness. Now again, for the individual, that is provided through the death of Christ. 
When someone trusts the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, not only is his sin forgiven, but given to him is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what we call in New Testament language justification. God declaring me to be not only free from sin, but actually to be righteous in his sight because of my faith in Christ. But for the Jewish people as a nation, and for the world as a whole, that righteousness has not yet come, because there has not been repentance. He goes on to speak about the sealing up of vision and prophecy. In other words, the final and ultimate fulfillment of all prophecy regarding the Jewish people. That must be accomplished during this 490-year period. And it says, to anoint the most holy. And you may notice in your translation of the Bible that uh, there, it ends at that point, or it may insert in parentheses or in italics the word place. The thrust here seems to be that during this 490-year period, by the end of it, there will be the anointing of the most holy things, referring most likely to a temple in Jerusalem once again. Now remember, that was a big issue with Daniel and the Jewish people in captivity. The temple had been destroyed, their sacrifices had been set aside, of course, and they were longing for that day when those things could be reinstituted. And here Gabriel says, actually, Daniel, before all of these things can come to pass, including the removal of sin, the restoration of righteousness, and the anointing of the most holy place again, 490 years must be fulfilled for your people. And so we cover the six accomplishments. And now move into the most complex portion of our text, where we want to look at the third feature of this key to Israel's future, dealing now with the three divisions of the 490 years, verses 25 to 27. You will notice that these 490 years are broken down into three divisions. Division number one, 49 years, or seven weeks, verse 25. And then again, 434 years, or 62 weeks. And then a final period of one week, or seven years. Now you'll understand why the latter division is especially important in this prophetic passage in just a moment. But the first period is said to be seven weeks in verse 25. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or a total of 69 weeks. Now what begins this whole clock that God is setting up? What is it that initiates the 490-year period? Is it this prophecy to Daniel? No. He says clearly it is instituted, it is initiated with a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's when the 490 years would begin to be counted on God's prophetic clock. Question is, when did that decree come? Most Bible scholars are divided around three answers on that. 
Some look back to the decree of Cyrus that we've already talked about in 538 B.C. when he released some of the Jews to go back to their homeland. And he even made it possible for them to uh, reinstitute some of their culture there in Palestine. Others, and I think more wisely, look later, uh, in fact past the time of Daniel, to uh, one of two years. The first one is in 458 B.C. when Artaxerxes I, who was the king of Persia, allowed Ezra to return to Palestine. Ezra tells us about this in the book bearing his name, Ezra chapter 7. Artaxerxes also at that time allowed the Jews to take back some of the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and provided for them to be able to reinstitute the temple worship in Jerusalem. However, it was 13 years after that, in 445 B.C., that Artaxerxes gave another decree concerning the Jews. And it seems to me that this is the best choice as to the beginning of the 490 years. In that year, Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah back. Nehemiah tells us about this in the second chapter of his book, the book bearing his name. And Nehemiah's responsibility was, in fact, to begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, particularly the walls of the city. For Nehemiah was greatly distressed that while the Jews were living in Jerusalem, and they had uh, reconsecrated the temple in part, and there were sacrifices being made there, that the city was unprotected, and the Jewish people were demoralized. And so he gains permission by from Artaxerxes by this decree in 445 to go back and to actually begin to rebuild the torn down, destroyed city of Jerusalem. And that seems to be the thrust of what is said to Daniel uh, more than 125, 30 years before this, or 100 years rather before this, that the city would be restored by a decree and that that would begin the clock. And so from my own understanding of this, I would select 445 B.C. and the second decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. Now you say, well, what is the significance of the first period of 49 years or seven weeks that seem to be separated here in verse 25? That seems to be the period of time that it took to actually restore the city. Remember, it took Nehemiah and his co-workers 52 days to essentially rebuild the walls of the city. But it took much longer than that to rebuild the whole city and to place around it what is called here a moat and to build a plaza, a large central area, perhaps a marketplace or perhaps a gathering area. But in order for the city actually to be restored, it took almost 50 years, 49 years. And so that takes us into about 395 396 uh, B.C. That seems to be the reason for the first seven uh, periods of seven, 49 years being set aside. But consecutive to that, following that, immediately went on the 62 weeks, the next period of 434 years. And nothing is said to happen during that time, and indeed, it is a silent time, primarily, in in God's revelation 
uh, Bible students speak about the 400 silent years from the time that Malachi closed his book until John the Baptist appeared on the scene and began to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so 434 years pass, it says here, until Messiah the Prince. Until Messiah the Prince. The language here is unmistakable. It refers to the coming of Jesus Christ. Daniel is told exactly when the Messiah would appear. Now, Bible scholars have uh, differed as to the beginning date, as I've said, and they differ as well as to the ending date. Does the coming of Messiah the Prince refer to his birth? Does it refer to his baptism? Does it refer to his triumphal entry? Personally, I'm undecided about that, and it's not that important to me to uh, debate that and come to a conclusion. The point is that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ came at the end of the 69th week, after 483 years. You say, well, that should be very easy to calculate. Well, it's not as easy as you think it is because of the change there from B.C. to A.D., because of uh, uncertainty as to whether the 490 years are lunar years or solar years, and scholars debate that, and there are other issues involved. So it's not as easy as you think. But the point is that uh, in this year, and we're looking now at around uh, 537 uh, B.C., Daniel is given the time when Messiah would come. And as I've already suggested, many Bible scholars believe that the 483rd year ended on Palm Sunday. On the Sunday that the Lord Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem, officially presenting himself to be the king to the Jewish nation. And of course, only a few days later, he was killed. And in fact, Daniel is told that, for he says in verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, plus the original seven, total of 69, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That must have shocked Daniel. Surely it left him in mystery as to what that meant. We know now. We're on the other side of things. But what it meant was that after the 483 years had been fulfilled from the time that the issue of the decree came forth to rebuild Jerusalem. After the 483 years had been fulfilled, Messiah would actually be executed as a criminal, which is what this verb suggests. He will be cut off and will have nothing. The point being that he would have nothing of his rights, nothing of the regal splendor that belongs to him as Messiah. It is John who gives us a brief commentary on this in his first chapter when he says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Cut off. He received nothing in his first coming that was due to him as the Messiah of the nation of Israel. The prophecy doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, And the people of the prince who is to come. Now the question is, who is this prince? Well, there are some uh, 
people who relate it back to Messiah the Prince in verse 25. However, I believe that's an incorrect interpretation. I believe the prince that is in view here is a different prince that has been introduced to us in Daniel before. It is that prince that is called the little horn, back in Daniel chapter 7. It is that prince that is yet to arise out of, as we have seen, the restored and revived Roman Empire. That individual that is called in the New Testament the lawless one or the Antichrist. Now what Daniel is told here is that the people of that prince who is to come will do something. They will destroy the city and the sanctuary that has just been promised to them again in this prophecy. They will get it back and it will be taken away from them again by the people of the prince who is to come. Now who are those people? Well, it's the Roman people, the Roman Empire in the day of uh, our Lord. In its original form, not as it will be reinstituted, but in its original form. Those people, Daniel is told, will destroy Jerusalem and its city. Did that happen? Exactly. It happened in 70 A.D., when Titus, the general of the Roman army, came and besieged Jerusalem and then ultimately destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and never since that day have the Jewish people had a temple again. And so what Daniel was told in 537 B.C. literally was fulfilled. The people, the Roman Empire, of that prince who is to come will destroy the city. And he goes on to say, its end will come with a flood, describing there the devastation, the ravages of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman army. Time doesn't allow us to recount the torture, the destruction, the ravishing of the city of Jerusalem when the Roman soldiers finally conquered it in 70 AD. Even to the end, there will be war, seeming to describe the struggle between the Jewish people and the Roman uh, army which dominated Palestine. And as you know, that was very strong even in our Lord's ministry. For many of the Jews wanted him to rise up as Messiah to overthrow the Romans. But that wasn't God's plan. There was this struggle between the Jews and the Romans until finally the Romans crushed the nation in 70 AD. Desolations are determined. Then in verse 27, he goes further. He says, And he will make a firm covenant. And make that covenant with many for one week. Now if you've noticed, we have already described 69 weeks out of the 70. 483 years out of the 490 have already been fulfilled before the, the cutting off of Messiah. What Daniel did not understand and could not have understood is that there is a stop in God's clock between verses 26 and 27. The point I'm making is that the final week of years, the final period of seven years, has not been fulfilled upon the Jewish people. God's clock has been holding at 483 years, now for almost 2,000 years. Seven years are yet to be fulfilled. What starts the clock again? What initiates the final week, he tells us? A covenant. 
that someone will make with the many, referring to Daniel's people, the many of the Jews. The question is, who is making this covenant? Now, there are some, again, particularly all millenarians, uh, theologians, uh, who take this to refer to uh, the Messiah, making the new covenant with the people of God. I disagree with that interpretation. I believe that he's talking here about the prince who is to come, that he's just talked about. That he, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the Jewish people for seven years. I believe that we can anticipate a future agreement, a peace treaty, an alliance, whatever you want to call it, between a strong European leader and the Jewish people. Now, whether we will see that before the rapture of the church or not, I, I cannot give you a clear answer. I believe the answer is no. They may happen very closely together. There may be, we may see the beginning of it. But it seems as though this clock begins with the actual signing of that agreement. And if that's the case, then we will not actually see that signing because I believe the scripture teaches that the church will be taken out before the seven years begins. Now in that seven years, it says that in the middle of the week, he, the Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. Now we understand the implication here that the Jewish people are going to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. Now let me tell you, they would do it yesterday if it weren't for the fact that a Muslim mosque is in the place where they have to build that temple. And they have a little problem there. You understand the dynamics, of course. For if they send a bulldozer in to get rid of the mosque, they're going to be involved in a, in a tremendous war with the Islamic powers of the Middle East. So how this is going to come to pass, I do not know. There are some people who suggest that perhaps they have mislocated the Temple Mount and that the temple actually should be constructed a slight distance from the mosque. Well, if they decide that's the case, then the temple can go up very, very quickly and the mosque can remain. Otherwise, the mosque is going to go some way, somehow, and that temple is going to go up. And there will be a reinstitution of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, probably by the Orthodox Jews. And the covenant will allow for that until the middle of the week when it says that Antichrist will put a stop to that. Why? Because he will want the Jewish people and all of the peoples of the world to accept him as Messiah. Indeed, we read in the New Testament that he will establish an image there in Jerusalem, uh, which he will demand that they worship instead of their God, the God of their fathers. And that is the reason for the breaking of the covenant. And he will change nature. Up to this point, this man will have been a prince of peace. He will make agreements and be very charismatic and very, uh, uh, very powerful. At this point, however, he takes off his mask in the middle of this seven-year period, and his true nature as a very wicked, evil dictator will be exposed, and he will begin to oppress the Jewish people. He again will make desolate. There will be... Uh, he will come, it says, with the wing of abominations, the, 
the actual language there seems to suggest an overspreading of abominations and desolations which will be geared primarily toward the Jewish nation. He will be tremendously anti-Semitic. He will pick up where Hitler left off and make Hitler look like he was playing games. He will be that kind of an individual. But it goes on to say that eventually he himself will be judged and destroyed by God. We don't have time to look into the New Testament regarding that, but the New Testament gives us a great deal more information regarding how that will come to pass. Every time that Antichrist is mentioned in the Bible, his destruction is also mentioned. He is a man who will be very powerful for a while, and then he himself will be destroyed. And so that consummates the 490 years. It is a yet future period of seven years that must be fulfilled, and then will come about the kingdom of righteousness, when Jesus Christ will reign on the earth. And then all of the vision and prophecies regarding the Jewish people will be fulfilled. And then the most holy place, a temple that will be constructed for the millennial reign of Christ, described in the last part of the book of Ezekiel, will be anointed by God and will be, the sacrifices will be instituted again as memorials looking back to the coming of Christ. Now, we have quite a panoramic view for the Jewish nation. I hope that this key this morning will give you more than knowledge, however. I hope it will give you assurance. In the first place, we can be assured that the future rests in the hands of a God who is sovereign. As he has worked in the past, so he is at work today. And he will be working in the future. I was talking with someone yesterday about current events. And he said these are frightening times in which we live. And indeed that is true. But the fact that we know the last chapter of the book eases the fright. Because God is in control. God is sovereign. And we can be assured that the future rests in the hands of a God who is absolutely sovereign in the history of the world. The things that have been prophesied in this book will come to pass. Now friend, if God is sovereign in the history of the world, He is sovereign in your life too. And you may today be faced with some uncertainties, some question marks about your future. Let me just give you some cause for rest. God is sovereign in your future too. Let him have his way in your life and lead you. Let him guide you. Let him open the doors. Let him close the doors. Let him develop you, grow you, and make you the person, the man, the woman that he has created you to be. A second assurance that I want to point to is this, that we can be assured that our prayers come to the ears of a God who is faithful. Daniel cried out to God, praying earnestly, intensely, fervently, as we saw last week. And God heard. And I like what Gabriel said. Daniel, from the very first you began speaking, God sent me. 
When you and I pray, our prayers come to the ears of a God who is faithful, who hears us as we pray. Now sometimes God in his faithfulness does not answer our prayers because we've asked amiss. Because God is faithful, he will not pray prayers that are prayed wrongly. Sometimes because God is faithful, he will redirect our requests and reshape them and bring a, an answer that we hadn't really anticipated. He did that with Daniel. Daniel didn't ask for this vision, this key to Israel's future. He was simply praying for Israel to be restored. God said, no, here's how I'm going to answer you. But the fact is that when we pray, we are addressing a God who is faithful. And we can know that he will respond in some way and respond immediately. And a third assurance is a very wonderful one. We can be assured that our soul needs are known to the heart of a God who is loving. Because you see, God was not simply showing us in what he's done that he could predict and then fulfill the future. What God orchestrated in human history was specifically geared to provide a savior for humanity through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God was about in saying 483 years then Messiah will be cut off. You see that's the real heart of it. That's the heart of God. It's a heart of love. God provided a savior for you and for me so that we might be delivered from our sins. So that our sins, our personal sins might be removed And so that we might receive from God the gift of righteousness so that as he sees us, he sees us not as sinners but as saints. And he receives us even as he receives his own son, Jesus Christ. This last week we will remind you again of a decision that a father and mother made to have a child. They decided to have the child despite the fact that they are in their mid-40s and knowing the risks that are involved having a child at that age. They had a particular reason for this. You see, their teenage daughter is dying of leukemia. The doctors desired to do a bone marrow transplant to try to save her life, but no suitable donor could be found. And so the parents decided to take a chance to have a child hoping that the bone marrow of the child would match the sister and provide for the sister an opportunity to live. This last week, the baby was born. Born to provide extended life, hopefully, for the sister. Now, we know that there are some ethical questions involved in this kind of thing. Not so much from exactly what they did, as the ramifications of that in our society. But I think that there's something of a parallel in what happened in that family to what God did. It is not unlike what God did in sending his son. For God caused a virgin, Mary, to be with child. And the only purpose for that child being born was that he might be sacrificed and die. When he was given his name by the angel Gabriel, 
Gabriel said, Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, God, our Heavenly Father, sent his Son into the world to be born as a man that he might be sacrificed for your sin and for mine. What a wonderful truth. And it's a truth that I hope you not only know intellectually, but it's a truth that I hope you have trusted and believed upon in your heart for the saving of your soul. The God of glory himself became the sacrificial lamb of glory. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can be assured today that you live and that you reign. That you reign over the heavens and the earth. Oh, that you would reign likewise in our hearts. Dear friend, listening to me right now, does this God reign in your heart? Have you trusted him as your Savior? This God who is sovereign, who is faithful, and who loves you so desperately that he sent a baby, his son, to eventually go to the cross for you to be your sacrifice. And child of God, you who have trusted the Savior, does God reign in your life today? Is this Lamb of glory the risen King who reigns on the throne of your life? Oh, may it be so. May it be so today. In Jesus' name, amen.